Then in hospitality, yes, we have to put on a show and you're on character mm-hmm. and you have to be your best, right, in front of guests. But they're humans, right? These are people that have problems every day, challenges every day. And so I really believe that you build a culture on those one-on-one interactions. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast today. I've been waiting for this one. This is a long time planning. I've got Isabel Porzakansky, the founder and president of People Traction. Isabel, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. As you said, it's been a long time coming. So excited to be here with you today. Yeah. So Isabel, we start every podcast the same way. What was your first job in hospitality? That's a great way to start. I was an on-call banquet server at a hotel called Caesars Park, which I don't believe it exists anymore, in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. Oh, my God. Can I tell you a funny story? I stayed there with my wife 12 years ago at the Caesars Park in Buenos Aires. I had no idea that was your first place. Look at that. Look at that. Yes, I was I was studying hotel management, and they were recruiting for our you know, on-call banquet. Uh, server. So that was my first job. And I'll never forget it. Big impact. So is it something that you wanted to do? Like, why do you have that as your first job? Well, it was good. I was going to school, right? Studying hospitality management Monday through Friday. So this made sense. It was after school and on weekends and uh, the hotel was just opening and we were the, we did the pre-opening party, uh, which was super fun. And then, you know, weddings pretty much every weekend. So learned a lot, whether it was social catering or business conventions. It was a great first uh, hotel job. We always like finding out why Why were you getting at the hospitality school? Was it something like that you saw that you were doing when you were young that you just connected to or was someone in the family doing it? Why were you in that world? Not at all in my family. Uh, I did not grow up uh, in, in luxury hotels or anybody in my family is in that area of business. In fact, they're all... Most of the people in my immediate family have PhDs and are very much into in the academic world. Uh, but I was always, I'm the middle child and very pragmatic. I wanted a short career that combined food, people, and travel. And that was that. So uh, my parents were always very supportive and uh, let me chase that dream 
there were no, I'm originally from Uruguay and there were no hospitality schools in Uruguay at the time. So I had to go to, to Buenos Aires across the, the River Plate and uh, study there at the age of 17, which is when I started, which was quite rare at the time. You didn't mm-hmm. leave your house that young, uh, traditionally in, in South America. So it was quite an experience. All right. So you're studying in Buenos Aires. You're working at a very nice hotel. How did you end up transitioning to getting into New York? That's a very different world. Was it something you were growing through South America or how did that happen? So great question. Did several internships in order to graduate, worked in a ski resort in the south of Argentina, in a couple of city hotels in Buenos Aires too. Then I had the opportunity through the school to do a postgraduate course in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And also in the Netherlands. So that really kind of opened my mind to what the global world of hospitality would be like. And so I returned home to Uruguay and actually started my own catering business, that my first dab at entrepreneurship, did that for a couple of years, and then uh, decided to move to New York and explore. So went and knocked on lots of doors and said, I need a work visa, but I'll do anything and uh, got a job from The Mark, which is a beautiful hotel, mm-hmm. 77th and Madison. Uh, it was then managed by uh, Raphael Group of Hotels, which was a small boutique, wonderful hotel group. And uh, I'll never forget it. I was given the opportunity to join in on a J-1 visa as an assistant food and beverage manager and did that for about six months. Then I became uh, the bar manager for another six months. And then I kind of saw the light. There was an opportunity in catering and there was an opportunity in HR. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? I think I want to try to do something outside of operations, even though operations was where I really learned uh, everything. And once in food and beverage, you know, you can take the, so the girl out of food and beverage, but you can't take food and beverage out of the girl. Um, I'll never forget I, that bar and that restaurant where just incredible and full of celebrities. And I'm talking about, we had a table in the corner. I mean, one day it was Michael Jackson and the Dalai Lama sitting on that table. That's incredible. Incredible. Amazing. So I had had no idea that you were in food and beverage. I thought you were HR all the way, but you were in operations and you're seeing celebrities and it can be very addicting when you're in food and beverage, especially all the rush, but it's crazy and you're working weekends and holidays. So when you sat down to make that change, were you something about HR that you liked or was it, oh, I don't have to work weekends? Or like, man, I really like working with people and helping people. What was it that hooked you there? Yeah, it was really a combination. I I knew that in the long term, I wanted to have a more stable schedule and eventually, you know, get married and have kids. And Mm -hmm. that was always in the cards for me. And I know you can certainly do it in, in operations. It's just a little bit more challenging. But if you're in the right company with the right mindset and the right values, there's plenty of uh, successful working mothers in every industry, uh, hospitality as well. But uh, I wanted to try something new. I really did. And it was a very small HR department. It was the director and me, uh, Julie Belva, was incredible. She's still in New York and is uh, one of my mentors. And uh, so I learned so much in a small team of two and in a union environment where I had to learn Mm -hmm. all that. Uh, so that was fascinating, but that was the start. That's amazing. 
And so I've always kind of wondered, because I've seen some people transition from operations to HR, but did you come with a bunch of operations ideas that they had to like, like she had to train you down on a little bit? Like, no, that's, we can't really do it that way. Or I hear you, but we need to do it this way to, to do it safely. Was it anything like that? Or you adjusted pretty quickly? I think the best HR, finance, marketing people come from operations. I really do. And if you don't understand the core of the business, right, which is that's mm -hmm. how money comes in, it's going to be difficult for people to relate to you. Like, I know what it is to stand up, right, 16 hours a day or work, you know, every holiday and get yeah. sometimes yelled at by a guest. Yeah. Uh, but I also know the rewards, how wonderful it is, you know, to be a part of somebody's wedding or convention. I think understanding operations is critical for anybody in any of those support administrative roles. That's good. So you're there at the mark. Seems like you've getting your foot in the HR world. And then you make a change to a company we were going to mention a couple times. Uh, but you make a change and you join the Mandarin Oriental Hotel Group. How does that come onto your radar? So what happened is that actually Mandarin took over the hotel. And I was, we were part of the due diligence process. So uh, the mark started being managed by, by Mandarin Oriental as they were building Mandarin Oriental in Columbus Circle across the park. Mm -hmm. um, so I transitioned to work in that team. At that time, I became uh, the training manager. So we added one more position to the HR team because now you're part of a larger uh, hospitality group, different standards, a little bit more structure. So that was wonderful. So did that for a couple of years. And then 9-11 happened, right? We were all at work that morning and the world really changed that day. You know, and if you were in Manhattan, it just felt really, really close uh, because it was. So I had just gotten married about a month before that, exactly a month. Oh my gosh. 11, to my husband, who I met working at the Mark. Oh, very nice. I know. You see, you could have the relationships working in the hotels. You can, you know, I, it's a funny story. Uh, you know, we fired somebody together. He was in operations and I was in a job. Uh, and then we really, we needed a drink after that. Well, that was the beginning of it. So if they get that story from Andrew, be like, all right, so you liked her style firing someone and now you married her. Okay. That's right. That's right. So we had just gotten married, as I said, and it, it, we were starting to think about starting a family and leaving New York after being there for, for four years. And uh, that's when I joined Four Seasons. So for the listeners, they know I've applied at Four Seasons twice and one time was just told no. The other time they were like, it's too small a hotel for you, Steve. You're going to get bored. But I've always imagined what it would be like working at Four Seasons. And you spent 12 amazing years there. And I really want to kind of talk about the rise because a lot of people that work at that hotel company stay there for a long time. And so talk to me about when you first started there. Was it something that was easy to get into because you had Mandarin Oriental experience? Was it someone you knew? How did that start when you moved cities and started? Yeah, so the opportunity was at Four Seasons Palm Beach. And I was referred by Julie Belva, who I said was my boss, who had worked for Four Seasons. Uh, who recommended to her friend, Shelly Comitour, another incredible mentor in my career, uh, who was a director there. And I, I flew there and we had lunch and we connected right away. And uh, the same with the general manager. We had coffee and connected right away. And it wasn't really a, an interview. And I think that's what's really important. Your, your resume, kind of your skills talk 
by the, to them, they talk by themselves, right? It's really about are you aligned in terms of the culture and the core values of what they're trying to do? And there was always complete alignment, I would say, both with Mandarin and with Four Seasons because of what they believe in and what I believe in. So no company is perfect, right? We all know that. So, but if you are aligned with their, their vision and their mission, then it becomes so much easier. So you join Four Seasons, you're in a new place. You, had you ever lived in Florida or is this your first time moving and living in Palm Beach? This was our first time living in Palm Beach. And imagine moving from New York City to Palm Beach, where <laughs> the restaurants closed at 8 p.m. Yeah, so I was going to say. It was pretty crazy. But so, yes, I moved there. We bought our first home there. My husband was working at the Boca Resorts and commuting a little bit. We lived in Boynton Beach. Wonderful memories, incredible team for Seasons Palm Beach was um, just a great school and a great first four seasons, if you will, because mm-hmm. very well run and very successful. And then you start making this run of moving up within the company. And so this is where I think it could be good advice, especially when you're married to somebody and you're moving up. I'm curious, how did you start to do these things where you move across the country? Was it something that he had to move and then you had to move or was it? You had an opportunity and you got supported because I know for a lot of listeners, they wish they could make some of these moves, but it's sometimes scary to do. That's a great question. And yes, always scary. And this is where you have to be really, uh, uh, um, I'd say, connected and share the same uh, goals as your life partner, right? We wanted uh, to be in the United States. We were still on visas at this time. I've had every single visa you can imagine. I had, <laughs> so I started with a J1, then I got, we got H1s because my husband's not, was not American either at the time. Now we both are. So we were in Palm Beach for two years. Uh, you know, as I said, we bought a house and we had our eldest son. And then Demi Brown was the VP of HR for the Americas. An incredible, again, sorry, I keep naming mentors and people that I've known for so long and have been so supportive uh, along the way. Debbie was like, okay, Isabel, you're going to, you're going to go to the Beverly Wilshire and uh, it's going to be great. You're going to learn California law and uh, you're going to, you know, six different unions in that hotel. So it's going to be great. It's going to be great. (laughs) Well, I was like, okay. So, you know, we sold our house and off we moved to LA with our five month old uh, son. And in Beverly Hills. We did, and what a hotel, right? We we got super lucky. My husband was able to find the job right away. He was working at the Beverly Hilton, and believe it or not, we both walked to work. We found a great little apartment in Beverly Hills, and we both walked to work. Awesome. In LA is unheard of, right? And we had an incredible nanny, to be honest, because it's very, very difficult to uh, to have a full-time job and... Uh, and, and be a full-time mom too. And uh, it really takes a village. And for, for a very long time, my salary just paid for childcare for a very long time. And what happened at the Beverly Wilshire, the work was really intense, over 600 employees. I used to go home, have dinner, and then at 8 p.m. I used to go back to the office until 11 p.m. I did that a couple of years. Why was that? Because a lot of people think HR, like, oh, you're done five o'clock. We see you later. Was it just so many different things happening? What what was it? Yeah, it was so, uh, I was without a director for some time. I was still assistant director at the time. Was without director for some period of time. There was a lot of activity going on on the, on the, on the labor side. So that always kept me very busy. But I learned so much, 
so much. It was really uh, such a great uh, school and LA, what a great place to, to be, right? We had, oh, in, in those two years, we also had our second son. So that kept me busy too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then our visas expired. So we had to leave the US, basically. Um, so that was it. You couldn't, like, I don't know the laws well enough in, in the visas that shame yeah. on me with two employment attorney married to one and my dad being one. <laughs> so your visas run up and yeah. you have to leave. And that's yeah, it. You tell four seasons like, hey, you got to move me. Yeah. Yeah. So we had H-1B visas at the time. Again, both working. My husband's career, very successful, progressing along the way. Yes. And uh, but it was easier for me to obviously get an opportunity with Four Seasons abroad. So we went to we went to London to Four Seasons Canary Wharf, which is no longer a Four Seasons, but it was a wonderful hotel. And uh, my husband got a job right away. He's from he's from the UK, so he was able to find the job pretty easily as well. Mm-hmm. And I I you know Debbie Brown told me we'll bring you back. Don't worry, we'll bring you back. And uh, so go ahead, sorry. No, I like I like where the story's going. And so yeah. you're in London, you're assistant director. Do you have a director at that hotel? I do have a director. Typically the the plan was always you need to be an assistant director in two places before you become a director. That was always the mandate and ideally a resort and then a city hotel. So I was ready to be a director, but there was there were no director uh, positions available. So I said, "Okay, we'll do a another assistant director stint." Uh Hopefully it's short and hopefully we come back to the U.S. soon. So that's how it happened. And we were in London for short. It was like just over a year, about 18 months, which is the time of period that you need to be away to come back with an intercompany transfer visa or an L1. Wow. Um, So you made it very well known. Like, I'm not staying here. Even though your husband's from there, we want to be in the U.S., and I'm sure he's doing the same with his companies, right? Or is he That's right. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. That's right. That's right. And we were always very aligned in that. We said, we want to be in the U.S. We want to have our family in the United States. We, we mm. knew that that was the goal. And, and so did the team at Four Seasons. So I got the call that the HR director position at Four Seasons Miami was open. And uh, obviously, I speak Spanish being from, from Uruguay. So it was a perfect, uh, perfect. We really felt like we won the lottery when I got that call. So when you get that call... Is Miami like one on the hit list? They say, I want to be in Miami, or are you ready to go back to the U.S. at any? They say, we're going to put you at Jackson Hole, Four Seasons, you're going there, or is it, I need to be in one of these cities? How do you navigate that when you're moving up? You're an assistant director, but not an executive yet, but you're valued because they've trusted you at some great properties. How do you handle that for listeners that might be dealing with that right now? Yeah, it's interesting because the universe works in mysterious ways. I, when I was in London, I, I was I applied for a couple of Four Seasons jobs that opened, and I said I want to put my name in the hat and didn't get it. I put my name in the hat and didn't get it. And then this most incredible opportunity to come to Miami, where we have family and friends. So things really work out. I think I even applied for you know I think it was St. Louis that was opening up or Baltimore. Places that I had no connection necessarily to, but I was just mm-hmm. so eager to come back. And my husband was also very eager to to come back. So, really, we felt like we won the lottery when we got the call. And I came to to Miami in yeah, it was April of two thousand and eight, with you know a two year old and a four year old. Yep. And what I really say is kind of the last boat from Europe because then the recession hit and nobody was moving. 
And right. uh, yeah, so that was interesting timing. Yeah, so you've had some big things happen that kind of shut down tourism a lot. And 2008, for listeners who you remember working, I was working. I remember it was very scary because there were a lot of layoffs and things like that going on. And this is your first time as a director as well. So I have two questions on this. We'll go start with one. When you became a director the first time, did you feel any different? Was it like, wow, this is my show and you're in a new city? Or was it, wow, all right, I got here. Now I got to figure out a bunch of things. You know, I felt ready. I did feel ready. I knew the company. I knew the culture. I had the most incredible team and the most incredible general manager, Ricardo Acevedo, who is legendary in his own right. Uh, and if you've met Ricardo, he, he or not, he's had an incredible career with Four Seasons. Prior, prior to that, I believe he worked for Hilton. And he is now consulting and living in Colombia. But I couldn't have gone through what I, what, you know, what we all went through in 2008 without uh, him as an incredible leader who made you feel, you know, he was that north when you had to make difficult decisions and the team was sometimes, you know, struggled or, or you know, to make mm-hmm. the right decision. And he was, he always put people first. Four Seasons and Mandarin are both companies that always put people first. But when things get really hard, as they did, you know, on, on 9-11 or 2008, it's when your core values are really put to a test and you really have to put the money where the mouth is. So he was the right leader for that time. That's great because I'm sure you came in and had to make some of these tough calls in 2008 as a brand new face at this hotel. That was my second question. Did you have to do those things when you got there or was it already done before you arrived? No. I laid off about 100 people uh, within three months of arriving. And, you know, I know we'll get to COVID in a minute, but as you said, it was kind of my second time going through a global crisis, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it's all how you do it, right? Everybody that walked out of my office walked with, walked out of, with a list of hotels or restaurants that were hiring for that position, a contact person that knew that they were going to call them. So they walked out of that office with hope and a plan, right? And knowing that when business came back, we would call them back. So they, everybody understood, just like they understood with COVID, that this is not something we did. This is something bigger than us. But we control how we handle it, right? And how we communicate and how we treat you as a member of, of, of the team, mm-hmm. uh, and we know that you have a family to support, so we 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 do it, you know, the best possible way. Let's see, and you handled it well. You're there for six years, and in that six years, Miami really transforms. Because at the time when you started, there wasn't too much in downtown Miami where that Four Seasons is located. Everything kind of builds up over those six years. A lot of competition, but you keep being the top hotel with some of the top cultures and and having uh, so many people who want to work there. I always looked at HR as like the keeper of the culture. How did you create and maintain that while you were there? Yeah, it's interesting. And obviously a lot of HR departments now are called people and culture. I, I, as much as I agree that HR is the gatekeeper in some ways, culture is demonstrated by everybody. So if HR can really say, oh, we're the keepers of the culture. Well, if the general manager or the director of rooms or director of FMB don't, behave aligned with that culture, yeah. doesn't matter what HR does, right? You can't really control that. So the c- culture is really everybody. 
I really believe it's one employee at the time, one colleague at the time. It's those one-on-one interactions. Yes, you do the parties, you do the events, you do the recognition, you celebrate milestones, you do all of that. But it's that one-on-one interaction that you're having in the hallway when some, somebody just doesn't look right, right? Mm-hmm. Something's bothering them. And you stop and you say, what's going on? You're okay? No, I'm not okay. Okay, tell me what happened. It's those opportunities. Could be something personal, could be something professional, could be something that just happened, you know, with their families back home. And, and people bring their whole selves to work, right? And in hospitality, yes, we have to put on a show and you're on character mm-hmm. and you have to be your best, right, in front of guests. But they're humans, right? These are people that have problems every day, challenges every day. And so I really believe that you build a culture on those one-on-one interactions. I love that. I think for anyone listening, that's just rewind that for a minute. I think that's what matters is seeing those people day to day from every position and just having those conversations is what really makes a difference. See, I, I never had the chance to work with you, Isabelle, and that's where I figure I would have learned a lot from you. And I, just personal question for my own selfishness, if we had been working together at the executive level, are you calling me out as a food and beverage director or a hotel manager saying, hey, you need to maybe take a look at this differently and maybe you shouldn't talk that way? Is that how you were doing it or were you doing it another way? No, hell yeah, hell yeah. Because there's a couple of things, right? You may not realize you're doing things a certain way or behaving in a certain way. And, and somebody has to be that conscience, right? And I always saw myself as the conscious, even as the general manager, because the higher up you get, the less feedback you get. Let's be honest, right? Mm-hmm. People are scared to tell somebody, hey, you messed up. You know, that joke you made, that was not appropriate. Or, you know, that comment you made, that didn't make people feel very well, very good about themselves. Or So somebody has to play that role. And I was very fortunate to work with great leadership teams and great general managers that I had very strong. You build them, really. No, it takes time to build that trust where you can go to them and say, do you have a minute? Can we talk about that meeting? Or can we talk about that conversation? Or can we talk about, you know, maybe how you behaved in the restaurant last night or you're coming to the spot too often or whatever the situation might be. But yeah, it takes time to build those relationships. But people, sometimes nobody tells them because they think they, they assume that they know. And no, sometimes you have to tell people. Yeah, it's true. I know there's a, a lot of GMs that might be, we say the old school way, and they need someone like you in their ear. So I'm sure everyone was lucky enough to work with you. And sometimes they'd be like, all right, I hear you. I hear you, Isabel. I'll work on that. You. So you're doing that for six years. You're really doing a tremendous job there. And I think for myself and a lot of listeners out there, this will be an interesting kind of turn of events because like I said, most people work for four seasons, 20 years, 25 years, they keep going. You make a change and join a great Miami company called 50 Eggs. How does that come on to your radar and you make that change? Amazing. Great question. I knew I could have stayed in that job forever. And a lot of people do, mm-hmm. right? You, you, you're always busy. There's always something going on. But I've always had this kind of entrepreneurial chip inside of me. Um, and it's funny because during those six years uh, with Four Seasons in Miami, I had three different general managers. All of them are still very close friends. And uh, I think after the crisis passed, I already had gone to my second general manager and said, you know, just, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to do this forever. Oh, 
what do you want to do? I'm not sure, but I don't think I want to do this forever. And then you get a new boss and it's like a whole new day and you have to prove yourself all over again, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody should know that every time you get a new boss, you got to prove yourself all over again. And after that, I was like, you know what? I think it's time. And I started just speaking to people. And then John Conkohl, the CEO and owner of 50 Yanks, you know, who I admired tremendously, he reached out to me and kind of started. Oh, wow. sending, yeah, he reached out to me because he was a big Four Seasons user or, or admirer of the brand. Mm-hmm. And he was like, wouldn't it be great to have somebody from Four Seasons running my, you know, people and culture team? So he reached out to me and uh, started, took, took me like six months to make the decision. I met with the COO and the CFO, who are, you know, Eddie Acevedo and uh, Ignacio Garcia Menocal, who now run Globe Bay Hospitality Group. Another great very, brand. Very successful and have done really great things and will continue to do them because they are very, very driven and passionate. So complete alignment with these three, with John and Eddie and, and Iggy. And uh, so I think they had made bets that I was never going to leave. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I would have, fun. I would have bet against that. <laughs> so on January 2nd, I resigned and, uh, and joined 50 eggs. So with the resignation were your family and friends thinking you're crazy or are they supportive? What was that like? Cause that could be, it's a big life change. It's a big life change. And uh, it might be interesting for some of the people listening that I took a big cut. I took a pay cut. I did. I was so committed to learning something new and taking myself out of my comfort zone and learning a different industry, because in many ways it is very different. That I was, you know, it's never been about the money for you. And and mm-hmm. and obviously you have to you have to pay your bills and put your kids to school and buy food. But my north has never been, oh, where am I gonna get paid more? How am I gonna do, you know? earn more money. So, and I never regretted it, never regretted it because I learned so much. And it was very difficult in the beginning. I always say it was like being, you know, on stage without a script. Everything I thought I knew didn't apply. It was a whole new day and different knowledge and different uh, experiences that I, so it was, you know, it was, I was stretching myself. Mm -hmm. And so with that, uh, you know, you're at Four Seasons, you've been at great brands, and 50 Eggs is a great brand, but it's different where you have a lot of layers, and there's a lot more people that you can call on for things, but the position you took on really is at a restaurant group that was growing at the time. What was the biggest difference, that, or I don't want to say shock, but what was the biggest difference that you're like, wow, I got to really step up here and learn this? You know, working at a different pace. And it's what I was looking for, by the way. I I wanted to work in an environment where I could create and make decisions quickly and done is better than perfect. And just let's try and if it doesn't work, we move on. So I, you know, when you're in a big corporation, it's harder to do those things, to be truly creative. There's a there's a template and it's how you operate and how you do things, and there's a lot of standards. Mm-hmm. And that's how you scale. Of course, that's how you scale and you create consistency. So when it's a smaller company, oh, so much fun, right? So much fun. So, for example, when we opened the Yardbird uh, in Las Vegas at the Venetian, you know, we did in one day, we interviewed a thousand people and hired everybody. 
and it, we we did a great uh, setup. So you know we would have never been able to do that uh, so quickly in a different environment. That's amazing. So you're working with an entrepreneur and you're being entrepreneurial while you're doing that. And I didn't know about your catering. So you've had that since the beginning. You had your own catering business. You've been in great hotels, learning the game. You're at 50 eggs. But it's is it a shorter run than you expected? Or do you just feel like you needed to make a change? How does that transition happen where you go to a familiar name that we talked about at the beginning, Mandarin Oriental? Yeah, so I got the call from the uh, HR director, Chris Clark, who had uh, been at Mandarin. And you worked at Mandarin, so you know. Um, I know Chris Clark, yep. Yeah, so Chris, uh, he was transferring to London, and so he called me knew each other, obviously, from the Brickle HR kind of networking mm-hmm. uh, circle. And at the time, the kids were still little, and 50 eggs was growing like crazy, right? They were about to open Yarbrough in Singapore, and I still, for me, it was one of those tough decisions where I said, you know what, I want to be home for dinner every night, and I want to be able to take my kids to school every day. And that became the North, you know, and I was like, you know what, this is a hard decision. And I, I came back to a brand that I, you know, love and know. And as I said, alignment with core values and a great hotel, iconic hotel, Mandarin to Miami. You know it. It's uh, just iconic. Yes, I love that hotel. I've had a lot of fond memories at the hotel. It's one of the places where I've told listeners before, I wish I would have stayed a little bit longer, but I was young and made a jump for money the first time ever didn't turn out as good as I thought, but hey, that's why we're, the stories happen. Um, but you're at Momia at Mandarin Oriental, Miami. Uh, you leave 50 Eggs. Was there anything that you missed about 50 Eggs going into Mandarin, or did you come with so many new ideas that you're like, wow, I can't wait to put these into place when I get back into a hotel? Well, the beauty with Mandarin is that it's not as big as Four Seasons. So it still has a little bit of that entrepreneurial approach that each property is very different mm-hmm. and you can you can do things in a pretty unique way within obviously great standards and you know about the OQEs the legendary quality experience yes. and, and all of that but uh more room for creativity than than I had before but uh you know in some way very familiar and a, a big team I had a big team in HR lots of colleagues right uh very successful triple five star, you know, hotel. Yeah. So there was a lot of pride, a lot of pride in that. And we've always learned. I, you know, kept learning, always. Did I miss probably I missed some of that, you know, moving quicker and making decisions mm-hmm. quicker and having, you know, sometimes meetings that could have been emails. But I think that's pretty happens everywhere. That's standard a lot. But I've found, especially when coming from a smaller, more rapid kind of pace, you crave that when you're moving forward. Did you bring anything from 50 Eggs like that, that you said, all right, I'm going to make conscious effort to make this happen at Mandarin? Or was it you had your own style already? No, I think I I was able to bring in a, a couple of things. And I think as a general rule, you kind of you want to leave a place better than you found it, right? You want to try to make your mark or, or try to implement a couple of ideas or initiatives that that are new and different and are going to make a difference, whether it's for the colleagues or the guests. So, yes, we tried a lot of new things. There was a lot of change in leadership in, in the hotel at the time. So, yeah, always always pushing forward. I, I think 
you know, I could be blamed <laughs> if you want uh, for being a bit, you know, of the entrepreneur within the organization. I was like, let's try this. Let's try this. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is not necessarily typical for HR because HR people are usually very risk averse and don't get me wrong. I always have my HR hat on and, you know, have to protect the organization from any sort of uh, liability. But sometimes we're very stuck and within a box. And sometimes we have to get creative. And, and we did that. We did that. Especially and it shows, during COVID. Yeah, and it shows that for listeners, you might have missed it because you just glossed over it. But there were triple Forbes five stars. So that means the hotel is five stars. The spa was five stars. The restaurant is five stars. And it doesn't happen by accident. Again, that's everyone living that culture, which I was a part of. And I learned the most. But it's also can be pressure filled. So how do you keep it going where the stress doesn't crush everybody trying to keep those stars going? Because that sometimes is a chase every day you have to live that. How did you keep everything going in your department or across the hotel to make sure things were kept fun? Yeah, I think you you really have to balance it out, right? Because the the expectations are very high. And, And whenever I interviewed somebody and I was often the last interview that somebody had, right? And we hired about 200 people every year, right? Mm-hmm. Luxury hotels, 30 to 40% turnover. You're hiring on a team of 600, 550, you're hiring 200 people every year. So your chances of being served by a rookie are pretty high, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you have to really focus on the right uh, onboarding and, and, and training. And Emilia Delgado, who's the... Yep. Oh, senior senior director of learning and development is just incredibly talented and knows this uh, so well and master you know, master of her craft. And she, you know, relentless, relentless on quality. So then the expectation is very high from each other, from the guest. So you really have to balance that out and give, you know, the most wonderful food in the cafeteria, the most comfortable uniforms money can buy, right? You have to pay at the top of your market, right? You have to treat people like you would want to be treated, which is really the golden rule, which is a four mm-hmm. seasons mantra. And and even take it, I think, a step higher, the platinum rule, right? Which is treat people the way they want to be treated. And that's hard because you have to figure out each person and what motivates each person. So I know that this person is extrinsically motivated or this person is more altruistic and they want to do good for the community. And so that was always a big thing for Mandarin, right? Sustainability and community engagement. And that is, is, is a great way to balance the expectations of, of, of that high quality service. Um, yeah. And you mentioned Amelia and I learned a lot from her and it's funny. I still think about her fondly because she taught me so many things on how to train people and do things so well. Um, that I still use to this day. But you and I had talked about this once in the past that not every hotel is investing in training right now. And a lot of hospitality companies, that's the first thing they cut. But I want to frame this the right way. There's probably listeners out there saying, I don't work at a Mandarin Oriental, right? I can't, I, I don't work at a Four Seasons, but let's say they're at a mid-tier hotel and they're the leader of this kind of mid-tier brand. How can they really develop that training and culture? What advice would you give to them? Yeah, so I think you you can bring somebody to train your managers, right? And then the managers train their teams. Uh, you train the trainers, right? And and that's a way of developing your leaders as well. So you can bring there's great trainers out there, 
specialize in food and beverage or, or sales or just quality spa. There's a whole world of trainers out there. But sometimes they come in and then they leave and nothing sticks. So you really have to train your, your department heads and your mid-level managers so they can continue that. And then you have to check, right? You have to inspect. You have to keep people on their toes. You have to give them feedback. How can we do it better? And create really a culture of accountability because otherwise it's just, you know, that is a, a wasted exercise, right? To bring in an expensive trainer and then nothing sticks. I think that's that's great advice. And for listeners out there, Turk Hospitality Ventures is for hire. And we'll talk about uh, Isabel's new product here shortly. That was not even asked for. So that was perfectly set up, Isabel. But you've done great. You're moving up in the world at Mandarin. Your entrepreneurial spirit, I'm sure, and challenging people to be better rewards you. You get promoted to a big title. You're regional director of human resources for the Americas. Was that something that changed your life? A lot, or was it more of the same? Because that is a title that a lot of people strive for in their careers. What was it like for you? Yeah, so it was an opportunity for me to keep learning, and I really believe in you know, grow or die, grow or die. If you're not, if you're not growing, you're dying. And uh, after COVID, right after things kind of settled down a little bit, I was like, I want to keep growing. I want to keep learning. So this was a great opportunity to learn, to work with our, you know, five hotels and two residences within the, the region. But very quickly, I would say, I realized that it wasn't necessarily <clears throat> the direction that I wanted to grow. So it kind of brought me back to what do I want to do in the long term? How do I want to use my time, my energy? Now my 20 plus years of experience, right, for something different. And uh, freedom was a big uh, kind of goal for me and freedom. When I mean freedom, I mean freedom to choose who I work with, to choose what I do, to choose when I work, where I work, and and to really find a, a path that for me was going to be more uh, fulfilling in terms of a legacy. You you could argue that I was had a legacy in the previous role, and everybody has a legacy in what they do, but mm-hmm. it has to feel right for you, and it didn't feel right for me in the long term. So you have this title, you've gained it, but it's not what you're feeling. And I want to talk now about what you have just launched. So why don't you tell the listeners what you have created? I wanted to obviously leverage my experience and my passion for HR and the 20 plus years doing that. So I started a company called People Traction, where we do three things, people strategy, people development, and executive and team coaching. And my passion for coaching I've had, I've had it for some time, but then I officially got my coaching certification in um, 2021. And I was like, I really want to do more of this. I really want to spend more time doing that. So when you combine that with entrepreneurship, that's kind of the other 50% of what I'm doing, which is working with a company called The Profit Recipe. And they do business coaching. We do business coaching for entrepreneurs. So I am learning so much from different industries uh, different companies. So it's not necessarily HR. In fact, it isn't. It's really uh, business coaching. And how exciting to work with entrepreneurs who are, you know, visionaries and uh, show up with tons of ideas like you. you. You know, you're a serial entrepreneur now. And so, you know, entrepreneurs change the world. I have no doubt. And uh, the opportunity to support them 
with bringing structure to that chaos, right? That sometimes happens in entrepreneurial companies as they grow. Um, for me, was huge. And again, the the universe giving you signs. I was actually having lunch with an entrepreneur friend of mine who told me he was using EOS, which is the entrepreneurial operating system, which is what the profit recipe uses. And it just stuck, stuck. And I just went down that rabbit hole and and listened to it and made the decision. And earlier you asked me about support. I mean, incredible support. My husband's like, go go do your thing. Go do your thing. Follow your your dreams. I know it sounds cheesy, but even my two, you know, teenage boys are like, follow your dreams. We're so proud of you. Follow your dreams. And I know it sounds cliche, but I, I think it's really important to find, you know, Japanese people call their ikigai, right? Which is really finding a combination of what you love, right? What the world needs, where you can make a living from and what you're good at. So finding that space with the right group of people, I think is really, uh, really important to me. So that that's why I made that change. I love that. I think... For anybody listening, that's great advice for anyone who has that itch, because I've had that same itch and I'm proud to see what you have made that leap to do. You know, I tell listeners I had the lunch with Isabel and we just kind of talked about a couple of ideas and didn't know what she was up to, just kind of answering questions that she wanted to hear. And I was just proud to see her do this. And now I'm excited to work with you. I never got the chance. I mentioned that earlier, never had the chance to work on the same team. And now Isabel will be helping us over at Tangy Management grow and and explode because now we're, we're ready to go. And we've got, like I said, steel sharpened steel. So I'm excited to have Isabel with us for this journey. So Isabel, if somebody wanted to work with you, who is the right person? Say, this is who's right for my kind of company. Is it anybody? Is it a certain type of person or is it a certain type of company? Yeah, so from the people traction side, the kind of the people uh, strategy and development and executive coaching, I really enjoy the the strategy part of it. So if somebody needs tactical HR support, you know, help with a handbook, I'm not the right person, but I can certainly put them in touch with somebody who can do that. There's a lot of very capable people doing that. And for the profit recipes, really entrepreneurs, you know, 10 to 250 employees. We actually work with a couple of really large organizations as well. So anybody that has a growth mindset, right, that is willing to have open and honest conversations about their business and can put their egos aside and really do what's right for the team and the company and just kind of rocket fuel, right? Just, just, just as you said, uh, collaborating to really look at the future and, and help you get there. So I find that very rewarding to be able to help people, you know, achieve their dreams. In this case, your dream and your partner's dream. And, and get what you want out of your business. Yeah, and I think for all of us is freedom. Freedom to do the things that we want to do when we want to do them. And that's what we're all striving for as, as entrepreneurs. At least I am. I know my partner and I think you too. So Isabel, we've got one last question. You spent a lot of time with us and I know you have so many things you're doing outside of here. So if you were starting today or if Isabel was starting on your team today, I like to say. So young Isabel was starting on your team. What advice would you give her as she's starting out in this industry? I would say join a company that has the right values, that lives their values, and you should be interviewing the company as much as they're interviewing you. I think you have to be very selective about who you work for, right? Just like you're very picky about who you marry, 
these are long-term relationships. As you said, you know, 12 years of four seasons, eight years with Mandarin. These are long-term relationships and there's ups and downs, but you have to find the company that's aligned with, with your values because if you join a company because you like your boss, your boss may be gone tomorrow and then what, right? You'll stay in touch as I have stayed in touch with a lot of great people that I've worked with. But more than anything, you have to find your way in the right company and, and, and see if they're able to support you in your growth and that you, if you're able to make a mark, right, and, and, and make a difference. I think that's a great place to end this conversation, Isabel. I appreciate you taking the time. Very grateful you spent this time with all of us. Pleasure. And if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, LinkedIn is always a, an easy way to, to connect with me or my website, peopletraction.com, or with the Profit Recipe team, I have my email with, 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 with them as well. So thank you for your, it's been great. Always great uh, connecting with you, and I look forward to collaborating with you as well. Finally, we'll work together. I'm excited. We finally get to put uh, our, our skills in place together to create something amazing. So Isabel, once again, we're very grateful. Thank you very much. My pleasure. All the best. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.